1: It had been four years since anyone lived inside the ranch-style home in Port St. Lucie, Florida. The grass had yellowed and withered away, while the pool out back had become a breeding ground for rust stains and murky rainwater. It was a house where terrible things had happened, and it's sat empty ever since. Once upon a time, it was the happy home to the Hadleys, but no one called it the Hadley home anymore. Now they had other names for it, The party house, the murder house, it was now a house that loomed over the peaceful streets like a dark cloud, making neighborhood kids pedal faster as they rode past on their bikes. And in the spring of 2015, under a bright blue Florida sky, the house was finally torn down. The demolition left nothing behind but a bare patch of land and the promise of a new beginning. A chance for a fresh start and the hope of creating something beautiful in its place. Join me now as we embark on a gripping journey and explore the disturbing case of a son's deadly rampage and another son's daunting task of piecing together the shattered remnants of his brother's violence. It's a story that will take us on a journey through the most chilling aspects of the human psyche, but also a story of strength and perseverance. A true testament to the resilience of the human spirit, even in the face of unspeakable tragedy. Nestled along Florida's treasure coast, the sleepy city of Port St. Lucie boasts a population just over 200,000 residents. And for anyone seeking a serene retirement, It's a place that provides an ideal haven for peace and tranquility with an array of retirement communities, golf courses, and easy access to Orlando and Miami. But while it may seem like paradise for silver-haired residents, it's a whole other story for the teenagers who call it home. For them, Port St. Lucie can feel like the dullest place on earth, a never-ending yawn with little to do. And for anyone who's raised a teenager, Well, then you know how idle time mixed with a pinch of boredom is a recipe for mischief and mayhem. In 2011, 17-year-old Tyler Hadley wanted to break up the humdrum of Port St. Lucie life. And what better way to do that, he thought, than to throw a massive house party? The classic teenage wild party you've seen in movies like Superbad, Mean Girls, or Project X. Where the parents are away, and the audience just knows, the kid's gonna have hell to pay. But for one night, they throw caution to the wind, and everything seems worth it. All week long, Tyler told his friends he was throwing a huge party at his house. Well, maybe... He still had a few details to work out before fully committing to the rager. Most importantly, of course, he needed to make sure he'd have the entire house to himself. And it appeared Tyler had figured it all out. Because on July 16th at 8.15pm, he put the word out on Facebook. The party was on and everyone was invited. News of Tyler's party spread like wildfire. Because for the teens in Port St. Lucie, a house party was as exciting as it was going to get. And it didn't even matter that hardly anyone knew the kid that was throwing it. Tyler wasn't exactly the most popular kid in school. He usually kept to himself and his own small group of friends. If anything, he was known to be a bit eccentric, mooing like a cow in the middle of class or saying something completely random just for the sake of getting attention. But then he'd go right back to being quiet and reserved, like the flip of a switch. Tyler's house party really got going around 11.30pm when dozens of teens arrived. It was just like he said, his parents weren't home. Beer cans cracked open in rapid succession. The music cranked up as loud as it could go, and a game of beer pong set up on the dining room table. When someone asked Tyler where his parents were, he said they were out of town. The next time someone asked, he told them they didn't live there anymore. Throughout the night, he kept giving different answers to practically anyone who asked. But for the sake of the party, only one thing really mattered. Tyler's parents were gone as the night wore on the party grew increasingly rowdy and tyler became more and more lenient about enforcing the house rules at first he'd ask kids to go outside and smoke but eventually was encouraging everyone to just light up wherever they pleased soon it seemed there weren't any rules at all and the house was beginning to pay the price teens weaved in and out of the kitchen opening up cupboards and rummaging for snacks Cereal boxes were dumped on the floor, beer was being spilt, and cigarettes were being put out on the carpet. A closet door was also kicked in, a fist went through some drywall, the house was getting trashed. More and more, Tyler was acting like an observer at his own party instead of the host. He was drinking and smoking pot, but mostly just keeping to the same small circle of friends he always did. Tyler seemed entirely indifferent to all the destruction going on around him. And people started to wonder, why didn't Tyler seem to care more about his parents' house? How could anyone just be so chill about it all? But although Tyler let the party go completely off the rails, there was still one rule he was strictly enforcing. His parents' bedroom was off-limits. No one was allowed in. The few times people did try to go in, the door was always locked. Was this Tyler's one token gesture of respect for his parents' home? Or was it something else? Something darker? What was behind the locked door? And why was Tyler so adamant it stayed closed when he didn't seem to care about anything else? Eventually, the alcohol ran dry, and Tyler found an older friend to do a beer run. But by that point, it was too late to save the party. Rumors were spreading around about another party somewhere else, and many of the teens left. After everything Tyler had done to throw the party of the summer, seeing the bulk of the crowd leave for greener pastures must have stung. But soon Tyler had more to worry about than just his bruised ego. Because the mass exodus of noisy teens leaving the party had caused noise complaints from neighbors. When the cops showed up at the Hadley's, Tyler's entire demeanor changed in an instant. Gone was the cool kid with nothing to fear, which didn't make a lot of sense for a kid who just destroyed his parents' house. A slap on the wrist from the local cops seemed like it should have been the least of his worries, but it was obvious the police had really rattled him. Tyler told his friends to shut up and hide in his bedroom before answering the door, then promised the cops he'd keep the noise level down. But almost as soon as the police left, another wave of kids started showing up. Because as it turned out, the other party had only been a rumor, and now they wanted back in. For Tyler, this was a double-edged sword. On one hand, his party was again the only party in town. But on the other hand, having the cop show up on his doorstep had really freaked him out. Although he tried his best to keep the noise down, eventually he just started kicking people out and the party wound down. At 4.40 in the morning, Tyler made another post on Facebook. He was going to throw another party. What he didn't know was that police were already on their way back to his house, but this time... It had nothing to do with the noise. Earlier in the night, in the middle of the party, Tyler had quietly taken one of his friends to the door of his parents' bedroom and unlocked it, swung it open, and revealed the big secret behind it. Just like the rumor about the other party, murmurs about what lay behind the door started spreading among the teens, and eventually, people started calling 911
2: Someone had a
1: party tonight and someone reported that this kid had killed their parents. He told me that the kid had up. And he was like, he told me that,
2: like the gist of it, that he did something to his parents. I was like, bro, I don't want to know any details. He said he already called and reported everything to Crime Stoppers. I was just calling because I felt like I needed to.
1: 750 miles away. Tyler's older brother Ryan Hadley had recently started a new chapter in his life. Only a month before the party, he'd uprooted from Florida and moved to North Carolina to be closer to his girlfriend. He'd leased a new apartment, started a new job, and at 23, was successfully checking off all the markers of independent adulthood. On July 17, 2011, the day after Tyler's party, Ryan woke up in the home of his future in-laws to a series of alarming text messages from a friend who still lived in his old neighborhood, asking if Ryan knew what was going on at his parents' house. Apparently, there were police cars everywhere, and yellow crime scene tape was wrapped around the property, but Ryan had no clue what he was talking about. He then texted and called both his parents, but got no answer. Where could they be? He had no idea, but his gut told him that whatever was happening most likely had something to do with his younger brother. Tyler had been acting out lately, going through a bit of a rebellious phase, running with a bad crowd, drinking, drugs, and disregarding his parents' rules. Ryan thought it was just typical teenage stuff he'd grow out of in the next year or two. It wasn't like he hadn't done similar things in his day. He was just better at not getting caught. The Hadleys only wanted what was best for their youngest son, and they'd been struggling to get him back on the right track. Tyler had been seen a psychiatrist and recently attended a substance abuse program for drinking and marijuana. His school attendance was also being monitored, and the GPS on his phone was activated so his parents could keep track of his movements. Ryan could only wonder what mess Tyler must have gotten himself into this time. Another hour passed before Ryan's phone began to ring. It was his grandparents' phone number, but on the other end was a woman's voice he didn't recognize. The woman was a victim's advocate, and she asked Ryan to sit down before proceeding to deliver the most devastating news he'd ever heard in his life. His parents were dead but that was all she could say. Ryan didn't understand. How could his parents be deceased? His father, Blake, was 54 years old, and his mom, Mary Jo, was only 47. They were too young and healthy to suddenly die. Nothing was making sense. Blake and Mary Jo had been married for nearly three decades. Blake, a diehard Florida State fan, had worked as an operator at the St. Lucie Power Plant for the past 24 years, and whenever he wasn't busy keeping the city's lights on, he could often be seen out on his driveway shooting hoops with his sons. Mary Jo was a beloved local elementary school teacher, known for her generosity and kindness, always going the extra mile to help students in need. Between the two parents, Mary Jo was the stricter of the two, but was never overly harsh. And from the outside looking in, the Hadleys seemed perfectly happy. A wonderful family that had built a great life for themselves. But now, that was all over. And since no one could tell Ryan anything more over the phone, he decided to pack his bags and head to Florida to find out what was going on. When Ryan got to Port St. Lucie, he headed straight to his grandparents' house. He would later reflect about this time in a memoir he wrote titled, A Thousand Fireflies, that time stood still as he waited for more news from police. That night, just after 1 a.m., police knocked on his grandparents' door and delivered more crushing news he could barely comprehend. His parents hadn't just died, They'd been murdered, and the person responsible was his younger brother, Tyler. Tyler Hadley was born December 16th, 1993, and as a child, loved trying new things, like sports or musical instruments. But the one thing he always struggled with was self-esteem. His lack of confidence meant he'd never practice anything long enough to see results and he'd quit almost everything he ever tried. A real cause for concern came around Tyler's 10th birthday when he began to develop an eating disorder, sending his worried parents in search for help, which is when they realized Tyler was dealing with more than just low self-esteem. He was also diagnosed with depression, ADHD, and a thyroid condition that was affecting his growth. But with medication and hormone therapy, they hoped Tyler could get back on the path to a happier and healthier life. His troublemaking days started at around age 11. He'd graffiti walls of public bathrooms, steal lawn ornaments, smash them, and set fire in the woods. Soon after turning 12, he started drinking and smoking marijuana. By 16, he'd escalated to stronger drugs like Percocet and Ecstasy and started skipping school. Blake and Mary Jo knew that the road ahead for Tyler could get worse, but were determined to help him navigate his teenage years and eventually enrolled Tyler in a substance abuse program. His parents were willing to give him anything he needed to improve the self-destructive path he was on by providing him with plenty of love, support, and services. But all Tyler could give in return was contempt. In his mind, His parents were simply asking too much of him. Yet none of these issues, which aren't exactly typical for teenagers, can fully explain why Tyler chose to end his parents' lives on July 16th. On the day of the party, Mary, Joe, and Blake had spent the afternoon at a farmer's market. While they were out, Tyler had some friends over. As the teens hung out and smoked some weed, Tyler told them about the big party he was throwing later on. All in all, it was a typical Saturday for the Hadleys, and when his parents came home, they went about their business as usual. Sometime before 5 o'clock, Mary Jo sat down at the family computer while Blake relaxed in their bedroom. What Tyler was about to do next, he'd been planning for days. To work up the courage to go through with it, he first took some ecstasy pills. And without his parents knowing, Tyler secretly took their phones and hid them. There was no way they'd be able to call for help. Next, Tyler went and retrieved a claw hammer he'd stashed away days prior. Holding the hammer, Tyler stood behind his mother for at least five minutes watching her as she searched online for programs that could help her youngest son out of his slump and then he struck her on the back of the head mary Jo screamed out asking why but tyler continued to strike her hearing the commotion blake came out of the bedroom only to see his wife on the floor and his son covered in blood holding a hammer When Blake turned and ran back toward his bedroom, Tyler chased after him and murdered him with the same hammer. Tyler then dragged both his parents' bodies into their bedroom and wrapped their heads in towels, placing the claw hammer down between them. Tyler then buried them under a pile of household furniture and other items. He then looked at himself in the mirror and laughed before going to an ATM machine. Later, Tyler would describe this exact
0: moment with a psychiatrist. I remember being like bloody and like it had like just happened. I remember, mm-hmm. I remember doing that. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you why I did that, but it, it, it happened. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely happened.
2: Looking back on it now, why do you think you were laughing?
0: I don't know. I know I wasn't in the. I was in some sort of deranged state because I could see my face. I could feel my face. I, I, it's not that I could see. I could see it, but I could feel it. Like I could feel my. Like I can't even make the, the the type of facial fixture I had on. Mm-hmm. I I really. I, I It's just. It was that. I could just it like rotate, like grotesque. You know, like what is that grotesque? Grotesque, grotesque. Yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that's the only way I could describe it. To where my face muscles were like pulled back and I was like, you know, just, I I can't even make that face right
1: now. After murdering his parents, Tyler only had one thing on his mind, throwing a party. He'd cleaned up the scene of the crime as best as he could, like it was just another task to check off his party planning to-do list. Then he used his parents' debit card to buy beer and waited for guests to arrive. But underneath Tyler's cool exterior during the party... The gravity of what he'd done must have been weighing on him, because to certain friends, he began dropping sinister hints he'd done something terrible. And as the night wore on, his hints got more specific.
0: Dude, like, I might go to prison. I might go away for life. I don't know, dude. I'm freaking out right now. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Dude, I know you're not going to believe me. No one will believe me. I freaking killed somebody.
1: It was a high school party with 60 or so teenagers drinking to excess. So, of course, the gossip began to spread. Some took the rumor more seriously than others and began to leave. I was like,
2: why do you have to go? And he was like, Tyler's parents are dead. And I was like, stop playing with me right now. And he was just like, no, I'm
1: not playing. Tyler's friends knew he was saying some pretty crazy things at the party. But then again, this was Tyler the kid who'd moo like a cow in class to get attention. And Tyler actually had a strange track record of claiming he wanted to kill his parents. In fact, he'd said it so many times over the years, it was almost like a broken record.
0: He said, I know that Tyler's been saying for a couple weeks that we going to kill his parents. And he's like, and he said to me, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I killed my parents and had a party? And everybody thought, you know, everybody thought the
2: kid was just playing
1: When that same friend asked Tyler why he'd want to do that, Tyler's answer was simple. No one had ever had a huge party with murdered bodies still inside the house. Then around 1 a.m., Tyler decided he needed to tell someone exactly what he'd done. No more beating around the bush. He grabbed his best friend Mike and told them point blank, I killed my parents. Mike, of course, didn't believe him. So Tyler opened up his parents' bedroom door and showed him the bodies. Shockingly, Mike didn't leave the house right away after what Tyler had shown him. Maybe his brain wasn't fully processing what he'd seen. Maybe in that moment, he was afraid of Tyler. Whatever the reason, Mike hung around drinking and partying some more, knowing Blake and Mary Jo's bodies were just a few feet away. Mike eventually told another friend about what he'd seen, and soon nearly everyone had heard rumors about dead bodies at the party. But what was especially disturbing is how many teens ignored it and just kept on dancing and playing beer pong. The 911 calls only started rolling in after the party ended. Mike was the first person to make a call when he called Crime Stoppers. Police were immediately dispatched. When police arrived on Grandeur Avenue for the second time that night, they could see Tyler through the windows. He was pacing back and forth. When they knocked on the door, Tyler turned off the lights, pretending no one was home. Eventually, he opened the door and police placed Tyler into handcuffs. As officers made their way through the house to the door of the master bedroom, Tyler yelled at them, don't go in there. And then, They saw what Tyler had done. The shock value of this case created a firestorm in the press. It was front page news. How could a 17 year old murder his parents and throw a party with their bodies in the other room? It was such a vacuous and appalling reason to commit murder. Nobody could wrap their heads around it. The public demanded answers, certain there must be deeper and more complex explanations. So, the media turned their sights on the only remaining family member they hoped could provide answers. They turned to Tyler's older brother, Ryan. But Ryan didn't have the easy answers they were looking for. Yet, they still continued to harass a man whose entire life had just been shattered. The responsibility of picking up all the pieces fell on his shoulders. There were pets to find homes for, insurance policies to deal with, and funeral arrangements to be made. To make matters even more complicated, Ryan was now considered Tyler's legal guardian. But fortunately, he was able to pass on that role to another relative who was graciously willing to accept it. On the surface, Ryan was functioning, but inside, he was drowning in grief. And in the trauma of losing both his parents and the little brother, he thought he knew, After his parents were murdered, Ryan suffered bouts of anxiety and panic attacks. He could barely sleep and became constantly terrified of losing other loved ones in his life. Ryan's world had spun off its axis, and he was spinning along with it. Fairly quickly, Ryan realized he needed to deal with the burden of his grief in a positive way, or else he'd end up being swallowed by it. He could numb himself with substances, but where would that lead? He could let his anger fester, turn acidic and bitter, but he had a girlfriend who'd one day become his wife, and what would that do to her? Ryan refused to let his own future become the third victim of Tyler's rampage. So in a move that would have made his parents proud, Ryan sought the help of a professional. Ryan landed in the office of Dan Urich, a professional grief counselor. And another story emerged from the tragedy of his parents' murderer one of strength, healing, and friendship.
2: I met Ryan after he wandered into a hospice organization where he was living here in North Carolina and said he needed help. And they referred him to me after a couple other therapists evaluated and decided that they really couldn't take him on. His prognosis was not good, given all that had happened. At first,
1: Ryan struggled with just even fully accepting that his brother had murdered their parents. It didn't seem real. Intellectually, he understood what had happened, but his brain refused to fully accept it all at once. While processing his grief, Dan always made sure Ryan had someone he could reach out to during some of his darkest hours, providing Ryan with a safe space to grieve in ways that he
2: needed to. People talk about, I need to recover from grief. Well, you don't recover from grief. Grief is the process of recovering from a loss. And given the right environment, grief does its work and it brings about healing. There's a psychologist by the name of William Warden and he talks about the four tasks of grieving and they are not to be completed in any particular order and they may not be completed fully, but they are, you know, simply to accept the reality of the loss and by that it's not being in denial, it's basically being hit, especially in the beginning with the reality that that person is gone. People who have had spouses in their lives for many years wake up for a long time after the spouse is gone expecting that person to be there. So that can take a very long time. Task number two, which is probably where Ryan and I spend most of our time together, and probably any person that I see in Therapy for Grief spends, and that is to process the pain of grief.
1: According to Dan, we live in a culture that prioritizes finding quick fixes to avoid discomfort rather than focusing on long-term solutions that require effort and commitment but when it comes to processing grief dan doesn't believe in shortcuts and believes the pain itself is a necessary
2: part of the process people need to feel the pain of that and that's a lot of what ryan and i did going to the house and then later on looking at photos of his parents bodies That was creating the space for him to really feel the pain and for it not to be taken away from it. The third is to adjust in the world without the deceased. Uh, Yesterday, on my way home from work, stopped at the uh, accountant and gave her all of my tax papers and reminded myself that if I were to die, I don't know how long it would take my wife to realize that that's now her job because I I have always done it. And then the fourth one is to find an enduring connection with the person who's gone. You know, people often say, I'm afraid I'm gonna forget what their voice sounds like. I don't remember how they smelled. And there's this period of time of almost panic that I'm losing them. When I've worked with people who have lost spouses, for example, who have lost children and then decide to have more children after that, this task is really important because it is very possible for me to lose my wife and fall in love again and marry again and love someone, but that doesn't mean I no longer love my first wife. I have an enduring connection.
1: When Ryan returned to his childhood home, Dan went with him. When Ryan felt a surge of emotions at the sight of his parents' closed bedroom door, Dan opened the door and stood in the room with Ryan. When Ryan felt his anger rushing to the surface, they went outside into the backyard and Dan stood by as Ryan tore apart wooden boards the Hadleys had once used to cover windows in case of a hurricane. It took two months before Ryan decided he was ready to see the crime scene photos of his parents' bodies. His brother's trial was quickly approaching, and Ryan knew he was going to hear the excruciating details of what had happened to his parents. He was going to see these photos in court, and needed to prepare himself.
2: There were over a thousand pictures on the disk, and most of those were pictures of the crime scene, and all of those had already been on the Internet. There were about a hundred of his parents, and and he also said to me one of the reasons he wanted to see them is because that was one thing he had control of and that there was nothing else about this process that he had any control over. So. We basically agreed, this could be a mistake, but if it is, we'll deal with it, like we've dealt with everything else. We looked at each picture of the bodies, which started with just slowly removing the debris on top of them. That eventually revealed the copious amounts of blood, brain matter, bone. It was very gruesome. And we had it on a laptop computer, so I looked at each picture first, and I described it in detail so that he knew what he was going to see. And then I would turn the computer to look at him, and it was a grueling process. We took several breaks. There were times when he just shook, and we just waited it out. After viewing the
1: photos, Dan and Ryan drove up to the mountains. Ryan then destroyed the disk and tossed it over a ridge.
2: As awful as it was, it was the most therapeutic thing. Uh, he would say that as well, that he did. Some of it because it was his decision. He had control over that. No one stood in his way. And he did get some answers to questions, which is, you know, exactly what did my parents go through? And I think that prepared him some for what he had to listen to in court.
1: Tyler Hadley remained in custody from the moment of his arrest. In court, he initially pled not guilty to all charges and attempted to plead insanity. But his long history of telling others he wanted to kill his parents made an insanity plea an in unfeasible defense. It also didn't help that Tyler callously signed his name, Hammer Time, Hammer Boy, or Hambo, for other inmates who asked him for his autograph. The fact that whether or not Tyler had indeed committed the crimes of first-degree murder was never much in doubt. The circumstantial and forensic evidence was completely insurmountable, but the only mystery that seemed to remain was why. The media continued seeking a complicated explanation for Tyler's motives. They wanted a digestible narrative that could make sense of the tragedy. But in the end, it was the simplest explanation that held true. Tyler wanted to have a party. He wanted to smoke weed and chill. He didn't want to go to school. He didn't want to do counseling. His parents were simply an obstacle that had to be cleared away. He didn't see them as people, but as mom and dad. Parents who were spoiling his fun. It was just as tragic, unthinkable. Unthinkable yet simple as that. Ultimately, Tyler pled no contest to his crimes and was given two consecutive life sentences, but in 2016, his sentence was overturned on appeal and his case was revisited. During his new hearing, Tyler was interviewed by a psychiatrist, where Tyler revealed that his thoughts about killing his parents started off as a joke, but then turned into pervasive intrusive thoughts he couldn't get out of his mind asked if he regretted killing his parents tyler said this
0: i miss him like i wish i could i could talk to him and, and know them more than what i did because i didn't really know him well as people and that kind of makes me depressed about that like i, I wish i would have known him more as people instead of just mom and dad you know like i, I, I never really seen them as real people now that I'm around people that are their age, I'm like, damn, you know, maybe I could have, you know, they were probably just like you, you know, I could have to them about things more than just like basic teenage kid stuff.
1: In 2018, after another review of the evidence, Tyler was again resentenced to life in prison. In his final statement, Tyler still couldn't explain his actions.
0: I still don't understand myself and the reasons for my atrocious actions. I really don't know, contrary to
1: what anyone else may tell you. Ryan Hadley co-wrote his memoir, A Thousand Fireflies with Dan Urich, so he could have his experience on record, but also because he never wanted to speak publicly about the murder of his parents ever again. He writes in his book that while he still loves his brother Tyler, He agrees with the court's decision. He believes Tyler should spend the rest of his life in prison. As Ryan puts it in his book, the glass is neither half full or half empty. It's both at the same time. I would be foolish to believe that I could experience joy and avoid the depths of despair. Since my parents died, my life has proven that there is a positive correlation between happiness and anguish. The more I permit myself to embrace the pain of my loss, the greater my capacity to experience the truly good things. While Ryan continues to decline to speak publicly about his parents' murders, he gave Dan his full blessing to speak with us about their experience together and the grieving process. A Thousand Fireflies, Living in the Aftermath of My Parents' Murder is a book we'd recommend to anyone struggling with grief and trauma. Ryan shares the story of his journey toward healing with such wisdom that even in his darkest moments, he inspires.
2: We asked Dan what Ryan is doing these days. He has uh, obtained uh, both an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree in nursing. Right now, he's been working as an OR nurse. He basically sees people in very traumatic and very vulnerable ways in the in the OR. and. Is a very compassionate individual and and treats people uh, with great respect. And I think that's just part of his character. But I can't help but believe that his own experience hasn't given him just a different degree of empathy for others. His parents did a very good job. And, you know, I would like to believe that they're looking down on him and, and very proud of him. So he has really dedicated himself to being their legacy.
1: Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening.